Well, good morning, church. This is the crowd that watched the World Cup and they weren't here for 9 a.m. Is that true? Who, who watched the World Cup at 9 a.m.? Okay, there's, there's some of you. There's some of you. Viva la France, hey? There's French blood that flows through these veins. So, viva la France, or, or as they say in France, viva la France. And that's the extent of my French. You know, um, I haven't been a big soccer fan, but our youngest, our 16-year-old, he's a big, big soccer fan. So I've been getting into this World Cup thing for the very first time. And then I realized about a week ago that I had said yes to preaching at 9 a.m. on July 15th, about three months ago. So I literally sent Sandy and Joel and a few others an email this week saying, I got an idea. How about we just kind of cancel the service, but people will be coming, but we could put, instead of me preaching, we'll put the World Cup on final at 9 a.m., and we'll call it a Global Focus Sunday. <laughs> I was actually half serious, but I didn't even get a reply, so, <laughs> so anyways, they got me, and, uh, and France won, um, so here we are, summer in the Psalms, summer in the Psalms. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus... You're the God of emotion. There's no sphere of our life that you are not in. And I pray that by your grace, you would give us eyes to see that your presence lights up darkness. Give us eyes to see. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in a psalm, but I'm going to springboard from there from Psalm chapter 22. We'll have it up on the screen here, and it's one of the most poignant, honest words from the psalmist David. David, who is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. He says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Wow, those are honest words, are they not? Have you ever said words like that to God? You've forsaken me, you let me down. Where are you? Does anyone know of someone in the New Testament who quotes this? Jesus, hanging on the cross, becoming the curse that was upon us. He takes it upon himself. And in that moment when the curse of all of humanity rests on him, in that moment when he actually became our sin, our penalty, our payment, and in his humanity, he is separated from God in that he's bearing the sin and he becomes, uh, in bodily form, our separation from God. He says these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want to deal with this difficult matter today. But there are times when God seems silent. He appears silent. We can't recognize where Jesus is in our circumstances. Or when there is suffering. And, you know, to put it more mildly, we're like, what's up with that, God? I thought you were victorious over these things. Can we dive into that? I think we can all think of times where we have said this kind of thing to God. Or maybe if we were religious enough, we didn't say it but we felt it. We felt it. So that's about as long as I'm going to spend in the psalm. It's the springboard into what does Jesus have to say about this matter? 
And we're going to pick it up with his disciples. And I want to walk through some narration in the Gospels. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they each give something of a perspective, a facet of the life of Christ, each with its, his own um, unique emphases. We pick it up in Luke 5. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus says to his disciples, which were really a band of 12 late teenager or early young adult age guys, and he says to them, I'll make you fishers of men. And he understood that these 12 guys that he was going to journey with for roughly three years were going to be transformed from relatively unschooled fishermen, there's a tax collector and a few others thrown into the mix, into world transformers. To when later on in his story with them, he says to them, I give you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And not even the gates of hell will be able to withstand the kingdom of God. So Jesus, in his mind, he's thinking, how do I, well, I think he knew how, but go with me. How do I move these young men from this? They're, they're not really well-formed. They're, they're, they think it's all about them. To this band of missionary followers who literally turned the world upside down. And I just read a book today, and con or this week, contrary to a lot of popular belief, Christianity is still the fastest growing faith in the world. Still is. Still is. And it's the largest faith group in the world. It comes from these 12 unschooled, primarily fishermen. Jesus has a job of forming them. How do you get people from here to there? And we as a church, we have a mission statement that we are about releasing the kingdom of God on earth. It's what God wants to do. It's a good mission statement. The challenge is, we too need to be formed. How much of the kingdom of God do you have to give on your own? You know, not much. Nothing, really. Our hands are empty. So Jesus begins his transforming work. He picks it up in Luke chapter, or we pick it up in Luke chapter 9. Story of the transfiguration of Jesus pretty fancy word. Just simply, he goes from his human form into this form where his divinity is displayed. The glory of God is, is on him. So he and Peter, James, and John go up onto a mountain, and, and the word says that while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Some translations say the, the appearance of his face altered, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. This is the quintessential mountaintop experience. And many of us come to church week in, week out, rightfully so, because we're looking for an encounter with God. We're looking for something experientially that comes from word, that comes from spirit. I frequently quote our, our senior pastor when I speak all over Canada. I quote Sandy by saying that we are a church rooted in the word, moving in the spirit. We want it all. We don't just want one or the other. We want it all. And God intends it for us all. So we come looking for these encounters with God. And this here in the Mount of Transfiguration is really that quintessential experience. I mean, Jesus is transformed in invisible form before the disciples. Here he is. The, the, the manifest presence of God lands on the mountain. And what does Peter say? Well, Peter's the first to open his mouth and think later. 
And he says, let's build three shelters. I don't know what your translation says. Let's be, build three shelters, three tents. And I used to think, what on earth are you talking about? Here Jesus is transfigured and you want to go camping? That's not what's going on here. Peter realizes this is a moment. This is a moment I'd like to stay in forever. Let's just stay in this moment of encounter. Notice that Jesus doesn't fault him for wanting to stay on the mountaintop in the visible encounter. He doesn't fault him. He lets him bask in it for a while. But then you get to the end of that narrative. It says, the next day they went back down the mountain and they face powers of darkness. They go back into, quote unquote, the real life. Jesus understands that if these followers of him are going to storm the gates of hell, they can't just be formed in well-pleasing environments. He needs to take them into the rough and tumble of life and help them recognize Jesus when he doesn't appear to be so easily recognizable. Let me put it this way. Some of your formation as a daughter or son of the king will happen in this room. And it should. Some of your formation will happen during worship times, will happen during teaching times, will happen in community that we experience here. Some of it will, and it should. I would argue much of your formation will happen outside of this room when your faith is tested. So Jesus gives some of his followers a mountaintop experience, but it's pretty short. And compared to the other narratives of forming the disciples, it's quite brief. So can we walk through a few experiences where they had difficulty recognizing Jesus? Sometimes they felt abandoned by him or forsaken by him. Let's walk through some of these. First one I want to look at is the title I would put on is Jesus in my scarcity. Jesus in my scarcity. We pick up this story in John chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you could turn there. We're going to spend a little bit of time in John chapter 6. This is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Interesting about the number of 5,000. Um, in antiquity, women and children didn't count. Literally, they didn't count. So when people would count people, they would mention the number of men. And it says 5,000 men. So there would have been women and children there. It's hard to know exactly, but it's not a stretch to think there were actually 15 to 20,000 people. If you've ever been to the Saddle Dome, on the sellout night, this is the kind of crowd that we're talking about here. As a side note, interestingly, in a world where women didn't count, Jesus had tremendous numbers of interactions with women and elevated their stature and gave them dignity and gave them voice and included them into his circle. So let's read this. Um, he, Jesus with his disciples on a mountainside, verse 5. Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him. And he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Full stop. What did Philip do to get picked on by Jesus in this way? I mean, there's 11 other guys, and he picks on Philip. I don't know the answer to that question, but I could just imagine him feeling bewildered. You know, maybe 10, 15, 20,000 people. You, you want me to feed these people? In Philip's words, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough 
bread for each one to have a bite. I mean, just to have a little bit of a nibble. Let alone, you want to feed these people. Well, it does say here in the text that Jesus asked this only to test him. He already had in mind what he was going to do. Talk about being led into scarcity. These are people who have said, yes, Jesus. Um, do we sing the song here, Joel? Um, you can have it all, Lord. Yeah, okay, we do. I, I can't always keep track of, do we sing it here or do I just listen to it in my car? Yeah, anyone else have that problem? Yeah, you know that song, you can have it all, Lord. So I can imagine when Jesus says to these disciples, come follow me, you can have it all, Lord. Good, because you're going to need that mentality in a moment. And he leads them into perceived scarcity. And not just marginal perceived scarcity, but incredible scarcity. So who was it that found, that robbed the food from a little boy? Andrew Simon Peter spoke up and said, here's a boy with small, five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? I wonder what the little boy had to say about that. <laughs> hey kid, give me your food. I, I, I don't know what happened. The word doesn't say what happened. But that's all they got. Five little barley loaves, you could probably rest them all in one hand and a couple of fish. That's an incredible disparity. And Jesus is setting them, setting them up for something. He's trying to teach his followers that they must be emptied of self-reliance if they are going to be moving in the kingdom. You've got to be emptied of self-reliance. For again and again and again, if we are to be people who are used by God to receive and to extend his kingdom, in and of ourselves, the resources will always be lacking. But in him, we will never, ever be short. And we see that in the story here. Just to kind of wrap up the story, people ate, people ate Jesus had them all sit down. He took the five loaves, the two fish, he lifted them to heaven and he gave thanks for the perceived scarcity. Because in the economy of God, what you see is never what you truly get. However, what you see in the kingdom sense is what you can truly receive if you're following me, if you're following the math. And then Jesus says, have everything, eat all you want. And then he commands his disciples, don't waste anything. Let nothing be wasted. Gather up the bread and put it into baskets. And many of us know the story. How many baskets were there? There were 12 baskets. Do you know in Scripture, whenever the number 12 is used, if not, if not every time, 99% of the times, but perhaps every time, it's meant to, to depict the people of God, to re represent the people of God. That, that's what the number 12 means in Scripture. I mean, you got the 12 tribes of Israel. you got the 12 disciples. You go into the book of Revelation, also written by John. He's describing this, this kingdom of God, the city of God that's coming down. And it's 144,000 cubits this way, and it's 144,000 cubits this way, and, and in depth as well. What, what is 144,000? That's 12 times 12. So what Jesus is saying, or John is saying in, in, in Revelation, that this is like the totality of the people of God. 12 times 12 times 12 times 12 times 12 times 12. And Jesus is saying here, church, don't miss it, Jesus is saying. When I call you into mission, understand that my provision will never lack for the people of God. So for Airdrie, you know, the, the elders are, are leading us towards, um, you know, potential relocation, building, you know, these things, we're going to hear about that, and it's going to seem pretty intimidating. 
And in some ways, it probably should feel like five loaves of bread and two fish compared to what the Lord may need us to do. But make no mistake, church, what God calls his people to do, there is always provision. But we must first be emptied of self-reliance before we can depend on him. I love how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, verse 12 and 13 I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And verse 19, my God will supply all your needs according to the riches in his glory in Jesus Christ. This is the human reality. We don't learn things until we experience them. Would you agree? We can know it cognitively. Jesus could have, on that Mount of Transfiguration, said, you'll always have what you need. Okay, Lord, okay, Lord. But the first time they try to storm the gates of hell and they feel the sense of scarcity, they would not have learned, oh, my God is faithful. So if you are feeling, sensing, perceiving um, potential scarcity or perceived scarcity, here here might be a prayer for you. Right at the end. In thanksgiving, Father, how am I to steward the little that you've given me? It comes down to obedience, giving that little bit that we have, stewarding whatever it is he asks of us. Some of us have actually never discovered how abundant God is because we haven't chosen to become obedient and stewarding to him, with him, that which he has entrusted to us. Jesus in my scarcity. Let's go on. Jesus in my fear. Jesus in my fear. The next story we want to look at is uh, Jesus walking on the water. And three Gospels contain this, this narrative, and each one provides different angles. John is one, Matthew and Mark is another. And they follow it in this very same form. That's why I'm sticking with this one. There it is in John chapter 6, the very next story. And some of the pieces I'm going to collect from the other Gospel accounts, I'm, I'm not going to read this entirely. So Jesus, the next day, or when evening came, he makes his disciples get into a boat. I think it's Matthew's account says that. He makes them get into a boat. He said, I'll catch up with you later. And so they're rowing across the lake, the Sea of Galilee. How big is the Sea of Galilee? It's kind of like a, if you know the Lake, uh, lake Okanagan, it's kind of long. If you just sort of compressed it until it looked like a bit of an oval, that's probably the Sea of Galilee. So they were three or four miles out into this lake, And Jesus comes walking along. And this isn't a northern environment where they had like ice floating in the water or something to that effect. Here he is. He's walking on the water. I think it's Mark's version says that they were terrified. They thought they were seeing a ghost. So these were fishermen. They're seasoned. So, you know, a little storm isn't going to totally freak them out. But they're having a rough night. The wind's blowing. The waves are chopping. They're not making any headway. And great. Now we've got a poltergeist walking by us here in the middle of the night. They're fearful. Who sent them into the situation of fear? Jesus did. Don't ever believe that God will never leave you, lead you. Let me repeat it because I want you to hear it clearly. Don't ever believe the lie that God will never lead you into seemingly fearful circumstances. It's actually his objective to do that, if you think about it. 
to have a mission statement that says we will release the kingdom of heaven on earth, that is a violent mission statement. The word of God talks about the kingdom of God is at hand, and violent people take hold of it. Why is it violent? Because there is a displacement of the illegitimate kingdom. It's not violence against human beings. No, we ought to be gentle, the, the most gentle people on the planet. However, it is violent against the kingdom of darkness. Jesus will lead us into seemingly fearful situations. To storm the gates of hell. The Bible says not even the gates of hell will withstand the church. That isn't we are hunkered down and our gates won't break. It has nothing to do with it. We're not hunkered down anywhere. We are actually pushing back the gates of darkness and rushing into the camp of the enemy and bringing light where there is darkness and setting free those who feel captive or those who are captive. In the enemy's camp, if you don't have your armor on, you got reason to fear. And if Jesus had never led his followers into a fearful circumstance, how could they then stare the enemy in the face and effectively say to them, I do not fear you? Because Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, which leaves you with nothing. This is the grand story of Scripture all the way through. You can pick it up in Exodus, the people of Israel who have been held in captivity, slavery for 400 years to the Egyptians. God delivers them. They effectively plunder the Egyptians. They leave town and everyone gives them gold and animals and pearls and jewels. And then they find themselves up at the Red Sea. God could have just parted that Red Sea. Let's go party in the wilderness before we take the promised land. But he didn't. He actually incited Pharaoh and his army to come against them so that they were literally between, not literally, figuratively between a rock and a hard place, between the water, and these people couldn't swim back in those days, and Pharaoh's army. He leads them into perceived fearfulness. And many of us know the story. God defeats the enemy, and it becomes the experiential narrative of the people of God. God rescues me in my fear. He'll lead me into it, not to play with me, but to form me. And Jesus is doing this in his disciples. He is emptying them of self-protection. And what is the result? It's fearlessness. I like how Paul puts it in Philippians 4, picking it up around verse 5. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving... Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Jesus walking on the water, his disciples are petrified, and he just speaks the word to them. It is I. Do not be afraid. His presence, more accurately, his perceived presence evaporates fear. My question for you is, have you learned the habit of recognizing the presence of Jesus in the midst of fear? He's there. He's there. Often he is initially unrecognized because all we can see is the obstacle. So the prayer for the person who is in fear but wants to recognize the presence of Jesus may simply be this. Speak, Jesus, speak. I need to hear you. Reveal your presence. And, and I encounter this in my life. I all feel, feel fearful about anything. It could be something related to my children. It could be related to something about our finances or vocation. 
and I just need to get still. Say, Lord, speak to me. Reveal. Open up the word. Speak to me. I'll listen to the Spirit. Speak to me. Jesus, in our fear. Thirdly, Jesus in my grief. We're still in John, but now we're in John chapter 20. It's a really interesting story. You know, Jesus Christ, he's been crucified. He was buried. We have the narrative of him being raised. But a lot of the details are not yet apparent to the disciples. And then verse 1 of John 20, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and it was empty and Simon Peter shows up, etc. But they don't, they don't know that he's been raised. They, they just, they're, they're thinking, great, I gave it all up for Jesus. Now I've abandoned him. Now he's been killed. And now his body has been stolen. And they're in, they're in full out grief. And Mary Magdalene, Mary, a woman who the word says seven demons were cast out of her. Verse 11, stood beside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Christ's body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Well, they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize it was Jesus, in parenthesis. It's, again, it's the unrecognized Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell him where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all, and she told them that he had said these things to her. You know, as an aside, this is a remarkable story. You could argue that this is the pivot point of all of the, the biblical narrative. This is the first announcement that Jesus is alive, that he has risen from the dead. And if he hasn't been raised, then we're dead in our sins, the Bible says. This is really the pivot point. And who does Jesus entrust the news to? A woman with a history. A woman with a history. But the very first act of Jesus, he begins to reverse the curse. I could take you to Genesis 3 and show you, as many of you know, that one of the first effects of the curse was to woman, you will be subject to your husband. He will rule over you. Women lose their place. And here, the first act after the resurrection, Jesus assigns the best news in the history of the universe to a woman who's got a past. Some have referred to Mary Magdalene as an apostle to the apostles. The apostles were one who carried the news. She was the first to carry the news. Anyway, that's just an aside. I just think that's really cool. Mary Magdalene. But before she got there, she was enveloped in grief. Have you ever been enveloped in an emotion? It could be grief. It could be other seemingly negative emotions where you just can't see straight. You know, that's what emotion does to us. I'm not discarding emotion. Emotion is 100% legitimate. It's real. But it can't always be trusted. 
It needs to be responded to, but it makes a lousy compass at times. And that's where Mary is, totally enraptured in her grief. How do you comfort your pain? How do you comfort your grief? We all respond to these things. Some of us self-medicate. Some of us self-distract. We get our minds off of that onto other pursuits. Some of us try to numb the pain, avoid the pain. What, what do you do when deep negative emotion comes your way? Jesus is literally training his followers that they need to be emptied of self-comfort and that they need to take to God their emotion, even as David did in Psalm 22. My God, my God. I don't think it's my God, my God. It's my God. Why have you forsaken me? We're allowed to go to him with that kind of emotion. And I love the tenderness of Jesus towards Mary. He personalizes his voice to her. Mary, she receives the divine comfort of God. If we're going to be people who release the kingdom, the kingdom has to come to our own emotional world too. And Jesus was in the business of leading his disciples to places of emotional extreme at times so that he could prove his faithfulness to them there. That even in the midst of pain and suffering and disappointment and grief, they can still walk away saying, my God loves me. He is faithful and he is always with me. And the prayer for someone in grief might be similar to the previous one. Speak, Jesus. Reveal your presence to me. Flip over, if you wish, to Romans chapter 8. I discovered something this past year in Romans 8. In the context of a passage that gets quoted a lot in church circles, and, and it should be, you know, this is the passage, Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know that passage? We love that one, right? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then it goes on to verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else, in, in, in case that didn't include it all, anything else, in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, who, who doesn't love that? Yes and amen to that? Have you ever noticed the verse, first part of verse 37? He says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The second word changes the game. In all of these it's not as Jesus rescues us from them. It's not that he bypasses us around them. It's not that, no, he'll never lead me to danger. He'll never lead me to sword. That's not true. There are, people, there are Christians who are killed every day in the world. The operative word is in. Jesus, if he, if he sees in you someone who can be a releaser of the kingdom of God, he will lead you into danger, famine, sword, opposition, fear, and in it, not outside of it, in it, you will be more than conquerors. It's called a test. He's testing his followers. 
He's applying tests. James 1, consider pure joy when you face trials and temptations or tests of many kinds. The Lord's testing your faith. The question is, will you pass the test so that you learn to trust in God in these personal matters so that when he entrusts to you kingdom matters, you can be faithful? It's hard to extend what you haven't received. And so if you're going through pain and difficulty, here's the good news. The Lord's presence is there. He's there. He will not waste your suffering. He will redeem your suffering, your pain. But there's something larger going on here. And it comes on the heels of what we sing here. You can have it all, Lord. Do we know what we're saying sometimes? I'm glad we sing the song. Do we know what we're saying? You can do with my life as you will. Jesus knew this is what it would take to form these fishermen teenagers into world changers. He didn't want the kind of kids that get developed from helicopter parents becoming pansies. I said that at 9 a.m. and they they laughed. I don't even say it as a joke. It's true. Jesus is looking for resilient, strong people whose faith has been tested and tried and they've come to the other end and they go, God is way better than I knew he was. His love for me reaches further than I could have comprehended. His faithfulness knows no bounds and his presence will never leave me. So take me wherever you want, Jesus. We see this in Stephen, Acts chapter 7. Stephen, uh, not an apostle, but performing signs and wonders, and he's being stoned, not in the October 17th sense of the term, but he's being, he's being killed. And as he's being killed, he is not experiencing fear or scarcity or, or confusion or grief. The heavens are open to him, and he sees the glory of God. So even up until the sword, God is faithful. Airdrie Alliance, soon to be Kingdom City, you picked one heck of a mission statement. You've picked a fight with the enemy. And the Lord wants to form us to be strong warriors for him. Be sure you recognize Jesus in the midst of your trials. He is there. If you can't recognize him, ask him. I love how this narrative, at least we're all ended, in Acts chapter 4. Some of these guys are preaching. This is after Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's come. And Acts chapter 4. Oh, I missed one, didn't I? Jesus in my confusion. Do we have time? We will do it. Okay. That's the that's hazard of speaking more than once on a Sunday. You can't really remember where you were. All right, so we did Jesus in my grief, Jesus in my confusion. In Luke chapter 24, this is the story of the road to Emmaus. So now uh, several disciples, we know one of them to be Peter, he's walking down the road with his, with his friend. They're going to Emmaus, which is like Emmaus is to Jerusalem, like Eridria is to Calgary. And they were confused. They've heard he's been ascended or, or raised rather, but they haven't seen him. They're just massively confused. And it says that while they were walking, Jesus walked up with them and began to talk with them. And he's asking them, what's going on? What's what's happening? 
And I'm not actually mistranslating this too far. They, they basically say to him, have you been living under a rock that you don't know? I think their words were more of, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on? And Jesus then, they don't know it's him. They were kept from recognizing him in the midst of their confusion. Got any confusion going on in your life? Can't see where Jesus is in it? And Jesus, starting with Moses and the prophets, he opens the scripture as they're walking. And he explains to them what God has already said on the matter. God's already spoken on the matter. There's no confusion. And then they compel Jesus to stay with them um, for night, and they're having a meal. And uh, the Bible says that Jesus, he, he took bread and he broke it. And when he, doesn't that sound familiar? Taking bread, breaking it. He's, he's reenacting the Lord's Supper post-resurrection. And then their eyes were opened and they could see him. Love that. You know, this passage has changed how I approach the Lord's table. I used to approach the Lord's table kind of by rote. Just walk up to the front, wherever, grab the, the cracker, chase it down with some juice or wine, and all right, I was obedient. I now approach it with expectancy every time. Just in the last year, I changed with expectancy. I've come to believe that Jesus is in the elements. You know, the Catholics teach that Jesus becomes the elements. That, that's, that's not warranted. But so many of us Protestants, we, we run from that. So, no, he's not there at all. No, I, I think he's somewhere in between. And so when I take the elements, I just have a heart of, Jesus, you say you're here. Speak to me. And most times he does. He might just remind me of a scripture. He might give me a picture of something. I'm not saying that's fireworks that are going off, but it's the, his presence. His presence is there at the Lord's table. We should approach those times with anticipation. He loves to reveal himself when we remember him. And so Jesus is emptying his followers of self-guidance. They couldn't figure it out. If we're going to be world changers, kingdom releasers, we can't be relying on our own rational thinking. And it's not like there's only two options, rational or irrational. No, there's something in between, and that is we actually possess the word of God, and the Spirit of God, and God can speak and guide his people. Do you need to be emptied of self-guidance? Does faith have to make sense for you to be obedient? Let me just put it out there like that. Does it have to make sense before you'll be obedient? If so, then sucks to be you, because Jesus is going to. His, his, seriously, his purpose will be to empty you of that, because unless he does, Unless you let him empty of it, you'll never experience the riches of his guidance. He doesn't do it for punitive measures. He does it because he wants you to know he loves you, he's faithful, and that he's with you. But we need to be emptied. Psalm 119, 105, your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet. Whenever I'm confused, I ask the Lord, what have you already spoken on the matter? And I had this experience just a couple of weeks ago, shared it with Sandy when we were, um, we get together periodically and update our confessions and here's what's really going on. And I said, I, I've been, my mind was spinning in confusion about a month ago. And I had to get quiet with the Lord and say, what have you spoken to me already on this matter? And he had me open up my journal. I, I, it's just an, on an Evernote file in my, on my phone. But it's a, it's a prophecy journal. And when key scriptures come out, and leap off the page from my heart. I write them down. 
And when people speak what I believe to be a word from the Lord, I write it down. And when I'm confused and he seems silent, I come to realize, oh, he's speaking through his silence. He wants me to recollect what he's already spoken. And I recollected his promises in the word and in spoken prophetic word, and the confusion is gone. It's gone. Unless we know how to do this, we won't know how to to effectively fend off the lies of the enemy when we're storming the gates. It's all training. It's basic training and learning to embrace it. The prayer for the one in confusion, remind me, Lord, what have you already said? If God has gone silent in your life, I would say he's not silent. I don't know if it's possible in one sense for God to be silent. It's his nature to reveal. If he seems silent, he's speaking through the silence. He's always speaking. And now, finally, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, these guys are preaching. It's post-Pentecost. They've received the Spirit. They've gone through this training. And they were teaching, and Peter and others were teaching under accusation. And this is what the Word says in verse 13 of Acts 4. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I love that. These are the same guys who can't recognize Jesus. Can't recognize Jesus. Where where is Jesus? I can't recognize Jesus. And now that they got so much of that figured out and emptied and filled with him, they become seemingly unrecognizable to other people. Isn't that beautiful? It's a transformation that God wants in every single one of our lives. And therefore... Let us embrace passages like James 1 that we so often wish wasn't in the Bible. But seriously, I mean, read it with me. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, got to find my slide here because I can't read it through there, produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Oh, church family, Jesus loves you. He is faithful. There's not an aspect of your life that he is not operating in. Actually, if there's any good news to the story, it's simply this. Jesus is way more active in your life than you know. You just may not recognize it. And there may be, there may be somebody here today, you've, you're just starting to recognize that Jesus is who he claims he is for the first time that he comes from God, that he is a man of love, and that he is one that offers to take our penalty, our blackness, the the darkness of our soul, he offers to take it from you and to give you a new life. So let's all stand together. Let's all stand together. You can just put your hand on your own heart if you would like to. you declare this truth over your life in Jesus name I declare that I am loved that God is faithful that he will never leave me or forsake me and that he is way more active than I know and he is way better than I know Jesus give me the eyes to recognize you every circumstance of my life. Train me 
test me, empty me, that I might be filled with you. And now if there's anyone here who you want today to be the day where you can come into peace with God, knowing that, yes, it is Jesus who has his eyes on you, and you are recognizing him to be the God of your life under your own breath. You can just pray along with me. Dear Jesus, come into my life. Take my blackness. Take my brokenness. I choose to live for you even though I don't know how. Come and create a new life in me. In Jesus' name. And friends, if you prayed that last prayer, if that's on your heart or you want to talk more about that, come and talk to one of us at the front. We'd be so delighted to uh, have a conversation with you on that. And the rest of you know that God's training you. He loves you. God bless you. Go in peace and have a great week.